Welcome to the Hills Church Podcast. Hills Church is a four-square church in Laguna Hills, California. Visit us on the web at hillschurchoc.com. Uh, this summer, as we are um, looking at the book of Acts, we're in a, a, an interesting time for us as a, as a church family, as we are kind of in this new uh, facility only six months uh, in, and we're looking to see what kind of church God wants us to be. I've had a lot of people ask me about like, well, Pastor Jeff, what's kind of the vision of the church, or what's the... What's the audience that we're trying to reach? And uh, the purpose of our church, I, it sounds so kind of generic, but like the purpose of our church is to glorify God. And the target audience of people that we're trying to reach are the people who are around us in our lives. Um, no amount of marketing, no amount of advertising, no amount of all of these kind of human things. They can only at best complement what God is doing in our church. And when we talk about what God is doing in our church, we're really talking about what? What he's doing in us. Because the church is not this little room. The church is who? The church is what? The church is, is us. So if you want to know who we're targeting, we're targeting your neighbor, we're targeting the person who sits in the cubicle next to you. We're um, targeting the person that uh, you go to Zumba with. We're targeting your family, your extended family. We're targeting your sons and your daughters. And we're targeting your moms and your dads and your cousins. Because when people begin to see what God is doing in the life of someone... It starts to become contagious, and that's what we learn in studying the book of Acts like we're doing this summer. When you begin to look at the birth of the church, which is really what the book of Acts is, just as a quick reminder, the book of Acts is kind of the sequel. It's kind of the sequel to the book of Luke. They were written both by the same uh, individual, Luke, who though he was not one of the twelve disciples, was close enough in proximity, was super tight, that he was able to bring kind of this objective, historical, educated approach. In fact, when you think of the book of Luke, you need to think of somebody who is writing with a sense of perspective and history. He's wanting to provide the grand picture of what happens. And the gospel of Luke is the grand picture of what happened in Jesus' life. The things he said, the things he did. But the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, Luke begins to talk about now what the church does. What the people of God begin to become and what they begin to do. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, this particular passage has been for many years, hundreds of years, been the passage when it says, what is this community or this, this uh, institution called the church? What is it supposed to do and what is it supposed to be? And we find that after the events that took place in Acts chapter 2, uh, 
the outpouring of the Spirit of God into everyday people, where no longer it's just God speaking to people, but now it's God speaking and working through people, right? Empowering us to carry on the ministry that He has given to us. Look what happens to this group of people as they give themselves to that process. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, this is probably the most famous passage that defines what is the work of the ecclesia, or the called out, the church. It says, and they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. What does what does devoted or devotion mean? Just somebody, we're small enough to... Commitment. Not just a commitment, the commitment. If you are devoted to something, if we say that we're devoted to our spouse, what we're saying is nothing comes and has a higher priority than that relationship. If we're devoted to our kids, nothing is more important than their well-being. And the scripture says that the group of people that begin to gather together and identify themselves as people who were part of the kingdom of God. And as they committed themselves to sharing life together, this was their priority. These were the things that they prioritized in life. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. They devoted themselves. Now, somebody would say, well, of course, it's really easy to do that in the first century because, you know, they didn't have TV. They didn't have phones. They didn't have soccer. They didn't have 40-hour work weeks. They didn't have demands from all... Listen, I grew up near a farm. And you've got to remember that mostly for most of the individuals that they're talking about, we're talking about subsistence living which means you ate what you grew, right? Which means that you bartered for the things that you needed. If anybody who has lived on a farm and had to start their day at 4.30 in the morning and then stop until 7 p.m. at night when the sun went down, you understand that the demands of the lifestyle of people even in the first century were not any less significant than the demands that are on our lives. Yet somehow, they knew that they had to make some adjustments in their life to be able to prioritize certain things. Because if they were going to see God continue to work in their lives and through their lives, to see the freedom and hope that comes from Jesus Christ as they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, they knew that they had to say no to something so that they would say yes to some other things. And what they said yes to... Scripture says here is to the apostles' teaching, a gathering that often took place in a setting just like this. I've come in contact with a friend of mine, and uh, uh, as we were out one day, and we were just kind of catching up, and I was getting to know him a little bit better. I knew him really only as a, a guy who was a property manager and, and real estate investor. Uh, but then he began to tell me that he had a, a Ph.D., Oh, really? A, a PhD? That's pretty impressive. What are you doing like in, in real estate? And his, his PhD was in the uh, 
the religious practice of the church in the first century. So that might be an interesting study, you know, all the research. I said, what did you do? He said, well, actually what we did was we, we visited every archaeological site that could be traced back to the first century as a place of worship. And we wanted to see if the architecture and the, archaeolo uh, uh, the archaeological remains could give us any insight into what happened there. Oh, really? So what did, you, what did you find? He said that the church in the first century did the exact same things that the church in the 20th century did. They had these buildings where people gathered for fellowship and for teaching in God's word. Said so that they devoted themselves to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. There's something so significant about sharing life together and to prayer. The ongoing, diligent commitment to placing ourselves before, before God. These were the things that the first century was committed to. Verse 43, and... Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Verse 44, and all who believed were together or united, and they had all things in common. Verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as many as who had need. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's a reason why here at Hills Church we say that our kind of process as a church is simply defined by these this simple little kind of equation. One times one times one equals one. In fact, it's actually based in this particular passage. One gathering a week, a commitment that we make for the teaching of God's word so that we would begin to understand it and learn how to apply it in our life. That we would commit ourselves to sharing life with a group of people on a regular basis who would know us, who would support us, who would gather around us, who would celebrate with us. And that we would commit every day to spending some time with Jesus to understand his assignment and to place ourselves before him to shape us. And those are the things that not only produce wholeness, but you know what else we see when the one times one times one equals one principle? You know what else that one is? Is us. We become one. We become united in purpose. We become united in our mission. I love what this type of lifestyle, it says it produces in people. When you live this way, the scripture says it produces generosity. That when they were sharing what they had, there was no holding back because they found that there was joy in what Jesus truly said and that it's better to give than to, to receive. They were generous. They experience favor 
with all of the people. And the scripture says, and the number that was being added to them was added daily. What we begin to see here is what we began to talk about earlier this spring. This is what the kingdom of us looks like. The God who is in relationship and who invites us into a relationship with him also understands that our relationship with each other is so significant to our well-being and our health. And when that begins to happen, people who live in the kingdom of me find it so attractive, find it so helpful that they want to become a part of it. We spend so much time trying to convince people that they should believe. But what do they believe in? See, Jesus dying on the cross for their sins is just a story until they see the change that's taken place in us because of the cross's impact on our lives. It doesn't mean we have to be perfect. It doesn't mean that we have to have everything figured out. What it does mean is that I'm willing to let you see my process and to let all the fake go away, to let all of the perception that I try to front all the time that I'm willing to be known and to let you see how God continues to change me. These same thoughts, these exact same thoughts, are echoed two chapters later. In Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, it says this. Now the number, and this is why I like for you to have your Bibles open, because to be able to connect, these, there's, there's a lot of events that take place between the end of chapter 2 and where we find ourselves at the end of chapter 4, a lot of life has already happened in just this short amount of time. And again, Luke thought that it was so important to reiterate this idea of what the kingdom of we looks like, of what the church is supposed to be like. He thinks that it's so important, he reinforces the idea again. After people had been arrested, after they had been falsely accused, after what Justin said last week about that they didn't have anything, but they had a story to tell about Jesus, and they had the power of the Holy Spirit, and they faced persecution, and instead of running away from it, they asked for, uh, for boldness so that they could continue living this life, this counterculture life. And Luke said that this was so important to understand, he reinforced this whole idea. He says it again, and the number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. How do we become one? One times one times one equals? I mean, we know this to be true in so many other areas of our life. You want to make a change in your physical body? You got to make a change in your diet. You have to make a change in your activity. And you got to make a change in your sleep. He says that this group of people were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Can I, can I, tell, it, can I tell you this way? Although they, this is important. Some of you might want to write this down because this is one of the challenges we have in the church right now. It's one of the challenges in my own life is that while they owned things, the things didn't own them. 
while they owned stuff, while stuff belonged to them, they didn't belong to it. It didn't own them. In fact, they had everything that they had was made available to be shared. And with great power, the apostles, verse 33, were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And this is probably the most important verse that is going to need to direct even our whole line of thinking as we go forward in the book of Acts. And great grace was upon them all. Because grace makes up for what you're not, and grace supplies what you don't have. I don't know anybody in this room who wouldn't say, I could use some more grace in my life. You want grace in your life, more grace in your life? There's a process and a program that God asks us to follow to see that grace released in our life. And what's so funny is the more grace we give away, what happens? The more grace that we receive. So many times in the kingdom of me, we're programmed the opposite way. When I have more, I'll give more. If I had more time, I would give more time. God says, give of the time that you have and I'll get you more. Manage the resources that I've provided for you and I'll multiply it. Verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and they bought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed as any had need. Now I want to take a, I want to take a break right here, because what happens is now he gives an example of an individual who lives his life this way. This is the first time we ever hear of this guy, but this is not the last time that we ever hear of him. It's kind of a way to introduce this new character into the story. Then Joseph, who was called by the apostles, Barnabas. Now some of us, uh, you need to understand that the word Barnabas is actually not like, it's a name in our culture, but it actually mean, is bar which means son of, and then nabis is a, is a uh, Greek word that means encouragement. So that's how he gets the nickname. Instead of son of a B, he is son of a E. My wife just shook her head, and she probably should. He's the son of encouragement. That's his nickname. That's what he's known for. How many of us would like to have a brother or sister in our life who is that continual encouragement to you? I got a couple Barnabases in this room. And the Barnabases in my life are the ones that I get to meet with and I share life with Tuesday mornings at 6.30. He sold a field that belonged to him and he brought the money in to the apostles' feet. Last week, Justin talked about the things that we have that although we start out with nothing, according to last week, we begin to have the Holy Spirit in us. We begin to have the testimony of Jesus. We begin to have the story of the gospel that changes life. But when we start to live our life that way, we start to have 
persecution. And the response to that is not to shy away. The response is to press in even harder so that we would come to the Lord and ask Him that we would have more boldness. Well, why do you, why can you have those things? It's because they have a common experience. See, we don't stop to think that like, we're, we're like, man, that must have been so wonderful, so amazing. Let me tell you, don't make the Bible the unreal book. What do you mean by that? Because it's so easy to forget that they had to get up every day and go to work. They forgot that they had to get up every day and sometimes their marriages weren't exactly where they needed to be. They had to get up some days and maybe not have everything that they needed. They had to get up some days and have conflict with people that couldn't get resolved the way that they wanted to. Now all of a sudden they become somebody who lives life counterculture, counter the culture, and they face a little persecution. They had to make some choices and live with some challenges, the same similar situations that we have to face when we start to align our lives with God's purposes for us. Their experience is the same experience that we go through when we start to make the changes that we need to make. I got up today. I went to put on my jeans that are now too tight because I had been saying that summertime it's time to lose weight. Well, I worked out hard twice this week. I worked out, I, I ate right. Six times this week. That doesn't count like the, chia, the chilaquiles that I had for breakfast yesterday. Didn't count the big old double hamburger that I grilled for myself with tater tots last night. Right? Didn't count the shrimp and lobster that I got to make for my wife's birthday on Monday. You know how many salads you got to eat to make up for all that? Salad without dressing. And we wonder why changes aren't really happening in our life. They also had a common commitment. One of the most powerful verses in this whole thing was it said, and there was no one who had a need among them. Think about that. Let me tell you this. Again, we can't make the Bible an unreal book. I've been a pastor of a church and serving in full-time ministry since 1988. More than 30 years. And in more than 30 years, I've never been to a church service where there haven't been exceptionally needy people at. We, as a people... For the most part, we're pretty needy, right? In fact, sometimes, I mean, we've been in other situations. It doesn't happen here, of course. It would never happen here like this because we're so loving. We take five minutes to fellowship, right? But we all have people in our lives that we avoid because they're so, because they're so what? needy so how do you go 
from knowing any time you gather a group of people together that there's going to be somebody who is needy and they go away having their needs met. How does that happen? That's where the pastor comes in. That's his job. Not if you're like me and you don't like people. Like you guys, you guys don't understand. Like this, uh, I'll I'll step off here for a minute. Every time I step down, that means I'm no longer pastor. I'm just Jeff, right? Like guys, I love y'all, but like I've been rolling since like five o'clock this morning, like focused. So by the time I hit noon, I've put in a very intense workday. In fact, psychological studies actually say that delivering a, a pastor who delivers a message for 45 minutes, it is the equivalent emotionally and the type of mental preparation that you have to give to an actual uh, eight-hour day of physical labor. The, the, the chemicals that run through the body are exactly the same. So I love you so, so much, and I love to go to lunch with you but that's probably not the time like you want to tell me about like everything that's going on in your life because like I'm, I'm like, hey man, can I just have the chips and salsa please? Right? I'm back to, I'm back to, to Jeff. What we find out in the scripture, and that's why I'm so proud of our church, is that it's not just the pastor's job to make sure that everybody's needs are met. The only way that a community can be like this is if everybody gives to meet the need. Because it's not about always finances. Sometimes it's somebody that needs prayer. Sometimes it is the hug that lasts a little bit longer than you're comfortable with, but then all of a sudden brings a settling to your heart. Sometimes it's actually listening to somebody's response when you ask them, how are you doing? There's never a gathering of people where there isn't somebody who isn't needy, and there's never a gathering of people, especially God's people, when the resources or relationships that God intends to meet that need aren't already present. If you've come here with a need today, there's two answers for you. God and the people in this room. The problem is, church, we have to be willing to not be owned by the clock. We have to be willing not to be owned by our mood. We have to be willing to live our lives with a common commitment. These two examples were given to us to talk about what the church and what we as individuals are supposed to look like. The story about Barnabas is not just about what he did as much as it is about, what do you think? How he lived. Because it's just one example. I mean, yeah, it would be encouraging if Cheech sold his house and gave me the proceeds. I would, that would really be, he'd really be a son of encouragement to me. But that's not the story. 
The story is you get this nickname from living a way that says, what, I ha- what resource do I have? There are plenty of people in this room who live their lives this way. And church, we need to start living our lives. We need to start living our lives this way. And what's interesting is in chapter 5, God gives us an example of how we're most tempted to live. Boy, this, this, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, boy, this is a church grower right here. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So far, we're okay, right? No problem. Man, how generous. How many of you have received an inheritance or you sell off a property and you're like, you know what? I'm just going to give half of this to the church to see if there's anybody financial needs who need a bit. That would be great. Unless Peter said, Ananias, why has... Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back a part of the proceeds from the land. What is Peter really saying? What was in Ananias' heart? How did he want to be perceived? Anybody? That he, but that he did what? That he gave it all. Now, there's not a lot of times like this, but most of us have had a situation where we, would, where we would use this kind of thing, where we'd say, I don't know how I know this, but God just kind of told me, is this true? We don't know if Peter got wind of this, because church people do talk. But he said, look at what he says. While it remained unsold, didn't, wasn't it your own? And after it sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to whom? Can you read? To God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all those who heard of it. Now, verse 6, I want to talk to you about us introducing a new intern program. Because we're expecting these young men, these young interns, to have to perform this kind of ministry. And the young men rose and wrapped up Ananias and carried him out and buried him. Anybody want to sign up for that intern program? This is like a freaky story, is it not? Like, we were just happy a few verses earlier. Everybody was like, hey, this is great. We are winning. Until Jeff shows up in chapter 5. Until Jamie shows up in chapter 5. Why is this so important? Can I just tell you, this is the first conflict we see in the history of the church at the very beginning where there's a conflict between the kingdom of we and what else? The kingdom of we and the the kingdom of and the kingdom of 
going all the way back to the beginning. We are faced with the challenge. Are you going to buy into God's system or are you still going to play it by your rules? This first conflict that happens in the church is not about how, what kind of music we sing or how loud the drums are or how cold the air conditioning is. It's not about doctrine and what we believe about tradition. The first conflict that we find in the church is about the way that we tend to compare ourselves with other people. It exposes the dirty water that we live in where we want to say, I can't do that, but if I'm better than this, at least I win. What's the minimum I have to do? How can I still play by my own rules? Church, we have somehow in America found that we love church as long as we can do it my way. What we don't realize is that our way is about works. Our way is about comparison. And you know what comparison does? It kills communities. Because it becomes a meritocracy where one has to work for a position or recognition. And your value is based in what you do and not in who you are. Somehow, even after all the things that experienced and that the, the, the incredible things that they observed, Ananias and Sapphira still were not caught up in this place of surrender that says, I'm going to play by God's rules. I have my own set of rules that I'm going to live by and it should be good enough. And what we come to find out is that fatally it's not. What we find is that comparison is a kingdom killer. Because comparison is all about the kingdom of me. Who were they trying to... What, why would you do what they did? They wanted to be impressive. They wanted people to think that they were something that they really were. They really were not. If there's one thing that churches do good better than anywhere else, even better than Hollywood, is train people how to be fake. What do we mean, learn to be fake, Jeff? Because it's fake when you tell yourself you're a Christ follower, but you only follow your rules, not his. That's fake. I'm fake. Because most of the time, I live in the incredible challenge between wanting to make sure that you think I'm good and I still get to do things the way that I want. We don't know why Ananias and Sapphira did this, but let me, let me, let me, I'm just going to give you a heads up. Everybody look at your watch. It is 1123, the big clock says. I got at least 10 more minutes, but I need you to stick with me on this if you can. Because there, there aren't a lot of messages that, as a pastor, 
you feel like, I hope they get this today. Or at least, at the benefit of the doubt, let me tell you, this has been so convicting to me, at least you get to share in my journey. I'm not even following my PowerPoint very good. Peter said this to Ananias. He says, why, when, when, he, when he asked him, he says, why has Satan so filled your heart? You know, the last time that Luke, the storyteller, mentioned Satan was in the days that were leading up to, to Jesus' death. He said that, Luke said that Satan actually entered Judas to begin the plot against Jesus. And Jesus says this to Peter on that same night. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan did what? Suggested? What does Satan do? What does Satan do? Because he is a dictator who wants you to do it his way. And that's why we're committed to doing things our way. And Satan has demanded, Jesus says, to have you. Do you understand that there's a conflict that goes on in heaven between Satan and Jesus? And he says, I want them. And the way I'm going to get them is by getting them not to listen to you. But to get them to live their life their own way. By their own rules. Independently and with uh, completely subjectively. But Jesus says, get this, but I have prayed for you. Jesus does not let this happen. He is contending for us so that our faith will not fail. And get this, and when you have turned again, when you have come back to understand that the kingdom of we is better than the kingdom of me, you know what you start to do? You better strengthen your brothers. You need to strengthen your brothers. That's really what encouragement is. That you are placing heart and strength into somebody's core where they may not have it on their own. This is easy because Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes with only two purposes. What is it? To steal and to destroy. There's no greater story in the scripture of Satan's strategy against the church, I think, than this one. Because Satan's strategy against the church is simply this. Let them do it their way. Let them deceive themselves into thinking that there's something when they're not. Let them be so worried about impressing everybody else and putting on the front that they never actually change. Satan is still coming after the church. He is still coming after us. He is still coming after you. He's coming after your families. He's coming after your resource. Why? Because that's who he is. And a dictator says everything is about me. And once he gets you thinking that way, 
then he begins to steal stuff. And things begin to die in your life. You know why they die? Because you can't lie and something not die. Write that down. You can't lie and something not die. Peter told Ananias, you've not lied to men. I take that back. Ananias did lie to one man. Who was it? Himself. Because when you lie to yourself, you're lying to God. Not because you're a God, but because the one in whose image you've made and who's invested his life into you. You're saying that my way is better than yours. See, Acts 2.42 says that when a church lives this kind of way, when they live in the kingdom of we, that great grace is on everybody. That needs are being met, not by accident, but because of sacrifice and attention. And that great favor was upon them all. Let me ask you this. If you read Facebook, when you read the news, does the church in the U.S. have favor? Are we kind of laughed at and made a little fun of? Like we're just kind of, even worse, we're just irrelevant. It's not about us getting all uppity and talking about the president being some like prophet of God. or a, It's just talking about the day-to-day -day life of living with other people at the forefront of our mind. Not thinking about ourselves all the time. Are people being added to the church daily? I mean, I, I love us, but today when I was praying, not today actually, for the, on Monday, when I knew that I was going to be talking about this, and I went to Acts 2, and it said, and people are being added to the church daily. And some of you wonder if our church is even going to, I mean, let's be honest. Some of you have wondered if our church is even going to survive. 25 people, 30 people. And I'm telling you, no amount of marketing, no amount of advertising, no amount of big events or all this kind of stuff is going to draw more people. I want the favor of God to be on my life and on our lives. And it means that we've probably got to start making some changes in our life. In the way we do this. And it doesn't mean we have to do more. It just means we have to do it his way. It's so interesting. You know where the churches are, where church is growing and having the biggest impact around the world? Most of you know this. Where it's persecuted the most. There's been lots of talk about the church in the U.S. dying. Can I just say it this way? Consumer Christianity is killing us. It tells us that we can, quote unquote, buy in like Ananias. I can come once a month and put the sticker on the wall. 
I can listen to Christian music on my way to work and that's enough. That I can still have one beer extra. It says that we can buy in. It talks about that appearances are important and participation isn't. And we have all types of reasons. I started to think about, because in the mirror I, I see a little too much Ananias in my own life. And Ananias' sin was saying he was all in when he really did what? He held some back. And who did he hold it back for? Himself. I just want you to be clear. I hold back from you. I hold back. I hold back a little bit from myself because I don't want to give more effort than you do. And I'm not saying to you as the church, as a pastor, that I don't serve you well. I'm just talking about in life. I get a call when somebody needs some help and I roll my eyes like, I don't have time for this. I got all Ananias on Jamie last night. We're getting ready to make dinner. And the sink clogs up. Babe, babe, you got to come fix the sink. You got to come fix the sink. Run the hot water. I'm in the middle of doing something right now. I don't go get the plunger. Don't use a toilet plunger. It's the only plunger we got. Well, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Can I, uh, well, it's, the plunger's not working. Yeah, you can go to... To go get liquid. I'm more concerned about dinner than I am about serving. Call me Ananias. I got a whole bunch more notes here. feel bad for Sapphira. In fact, I'm going to drop this real quick. Guys, you need to understand that the decisions you make to be selfish have major impact and consequences on everybody around you. I got a lot of flack for last Sunday. To be honest, I was a little mad. I was mad that at our dads, if I'm just going to, don't anybody get your feelings hurt. Just listen to my heart on this. I was mad at our dads last week. Dads who decided to go to brunch and not go to church. Why? What's the big deal? It's Father's Day. We should say, yeah, and on Father's Day, you have a great opportunity to say who's first. I'm so grateful for the dads and the sons and the kids who were here last week. And if you weren't here, please don't, don't get all hung up. Some of you, all, all of a sudden now we start like making, but Pastor Jeff, I have an excused absence. Here's a note from my mom. You know, or, uh, that's not what I'm talking about. Do you, do you understand the heart of what I'm, the heart of what I'm saying? Because we know it's not about attendance. It's not about the star on the chart. But it's about the way that we live our lives. And guys, when we don't make right decisions in our life, it has lethal consequences. 
And ladies, when you don't own up, when you just succumb to the pressure and you just give in instead of standing up and being a woman of faith, it too has lethal consequences. Hills Church has a great future ahead of us. But it might take some of us dying. Dying a little bit more to ourselves. I want to conclude with this. At the end of this event, look what it produced. And great fear, not afraid they remembered how holy and powerful this thing is that is called being a Christ follower. And remember how Luke tells the story. We repeated in chapter 4 what he said about the church in verse 5. Let me tell you what he says in verse 9. So the church, the church had peace. For those of you who've been a part of Hills Church, you know that peace for me equates the rule of God. It's the place where God is in charge. They had peace and it was being built up. And look at this. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort or the empowerment really is the word. In the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. Hills Church, that's the future God has for us. A people who learn to live with a holy reverence for God, which means what? I'm going to keep fighting my own pull to do it my way and I'm going to do it his and when that begins to happen guess what takes place a great grace was upon them all and they had favor they had favor with everyone That's the church I want to be a part of. And that's the church I'm committed to serve. And I want to invite you that we would start to live in the 20th century the way that they did in the first.